Hello and welcome to Fast Talk, your source for the science of cycling performance. I'm your host, Chris Case. It wasn't long ago that riding inside was something most of us did only when the weather was bad, the days too dark, or we were pressed for time. Flash forward to today and indoor cycling is quickly becoming a discipline many people focus on for its own sake. It's no longer a second-rate alternative. And that's why today we'll focus entirely on indoor cycling and its many nuances. The author of the famous The Cyclist Training Bible, Joe Friel, has now co-written a new book with Jim Rutberg, Ride Inside, the essential guide to get the most out of indoor cycling, smart trainers, classes, and apps is the basis for our discussion today. Friel, with decades of experience coaching athletes indoors and out, and Rutberg, who has long worked with coaches on disseminating their training philosophies, share their thoughts on the future of the sport and why we're seeing more indoor cycling. They also discuss the specifics of indoor workouts and why what works outside isn't always the best practice inside, and vice versa. That and much more from Joe and Jim. We also hear from three riders from Team Saris, the Pros Closet. Jennifer Reel, Holden Camo, and Matt Gardner are all members of this eSports cycling team and have been racing for years almost exclusively on Zwift. They help us understand the intricacies of this gaming-like platform, how to use the draft, why knowing the courses makes such a difference, how to set up your trainer, and much more. And of course, we also touch upon the all-important training aspects of indoor cycling. It's time to ride inside. Let's make you fast. Today we're going to talk a little bit about, or a lot about, Trainers, indoor cycling, indoor training, indoor racing. We've got two fantastic guests today who have just written a new book called Ride Inside, The Essential Guide to Get the Most Out of Indoor Cycling, Smart Trainers, Classes, and Apps. Welcome to Fast Talk, Joe Friel and Jim Rutberg. Thanks, guys. Glad to be here. Nice to see you. Really excited to have you. So as we were preparing for the episode, we read the book, obviously, and Trevor and I being in the training world and having been in it for quite a while now, dawned on us in a way, and the book really points th- this out. It used to be not all that long ago that trainers were that secondary method of training if you couldn't get outside. They were sort of the, ah, the weather's not great, or it's dark out, or it's winter, I'll ride the trainer. And we've previously done episodes, specifically episode 60 with a great physiologist, Kieran O'Grady, on the the, sort of the science of trainer workouts and how to get the most out of them if you have to. But what we're seeing now is that the trainer riding inside has become its own thing. It is not only a racing discipline. uh, Some people ride almost exclusively indoors. And so there's been this fundamental shift. We're seeing that riding inside has become something that people do for the sake of riding inside because they like it. So that's really what we want to talk about today. This Is it a golden age of riding inside? Is it a new era? Is it a, the dawn of a new era? Trevor, I know you have, as you often do, a good story to kick off the episode. I really want to tell this story today because this is a story I've used a whole bunch of times. And I'm going to explain at the end of it why I wanted to tell this story today. This goes back to probably the late 90s. 
I was working with a coach who he was a pure physiologist. So he wanted me on a trainer all the time because when you're out in the road, you get all these variances and he doesn't get good data. Uh, so he just wanted me to spend 12 hours a week on the trainer, which was miserable. And any opportunity I had to go outside, I did. And I had this one particular day where I was finally able to go outside. I, I had a three, four hour ride on my plan. I get out there. It's just a couple degrees above freezing. And this turned into one of those days where you know, there's a story you tell your friends about that ride you barely survived because 30 minutes in, it started doing this mix of rain and snow. I didn't have the right gear. I'm sitting there freezing my butt off on my bike. Things are freezing up on my bike. I can't use all the gears on my cassette. And I hit this point where I reach an intersection where I can go left or I can go right. If I go right, I can get home pretty quick in about 10 minutes. If I go left, I go over these hills and it's a good hour to get home. I thought about it for about 30 seconds and went, still better than the trainer. <laughs> <laughs> the proverbial fork in the road and you chose... And I went left. Misery outside over trainer inside. And the reason I wanted to tell this story today is because I think this is the last time I will ever tell that story. Mm. That was my opinion of trainers. It was... They are the absolute last thing. I will go and ride in the rain and snow mm -hmm. before I'll sit on a trainer for a couple hours because that's how miserable trainers are. And that's just not where we're at you anymore. You don't think that way anymore. I don't. And look, this is a, a recent thing. As you pointed out, we did episode 60 where we talked about trainers. And the important thing about that episode is we were trying to evaluate, is riding on a trainer good, bad? Does it help you? So we compared its biomechanics to on the road. We compared the, the training to on the road. The underlying message the whole time was we're going to evaluate whether trainers are good or bad depending on how well they simulate on the road training, meaning you're doing this purely to help riding out on the road. Mm -hmm. And if it doesn't help that, then trainers suck. That was basically <laughs> the underlying message right, sure. of our episode. but. As you said, and as you pointed out in the book, what really caught my attention was you had this line where you said, 10 years ago, trainers were a second-rate alternative when you couldn't ride outside. Now people ride trainers for the sake of trainers. And that's a, a fundamental shift that I think has happened only in the last couple of years. Yeah, Joe, Jim, I, I would imagine you wholeheartedly agree with that sentiment that Trevor just expressed. Well, I certainly do. I, I can recall <clears throat> back in the 80s uh, when I got my first indoor trainer and um, it was it was really kind of nice because I was I was able to do some in, indoor training. I lived in Colorado at the time in the wintertime. But I can also recall those days when I spent, you know, four hours on a trainer watching Tour de France videos um, uh, in gigantic puddle of sweat underneath of me. And realized how miserable this was and thinking about, you know, the next hope it, hope it doesn't snow tomorrow so I can get in the outdoors. And that was kind of the way it went. And uh, the world has indeed changed a great deal in the world of cycling since those days. Uh, now, just as you mentioned a while ago, Chris, people actually do this to ride indoors because it's enjoyable. They look forward to it. So the world has changed a tremendous amount over the Actually, just the last few years it hasn't been all that long. This has been going on with 
movement to indoor cycling is being as strong as it is. So very happy to see that. And for me, the background is, um, I remember back in, in college, a professor went through this whole, we went through a whole class about exercise assessment and all this kind of stuff. And at the end of the class, the professor said, look, if at the bottom line is if you can get people to move more than they moved before, you're doing a good thing. And trainers, the, the technology of, of indoor cycling, the improvements there have made it such that we can get people to be more active more frequently. Um, they can, they're more likely to ride more frequently and, and more hours per month. And that in itself is going to end up yielding a lot of great benefits for people who, whether they want to compete, whether they just want to be more fit, whether they just want to have it as more of a lifestyle habit, um, anything we can do to lower the barriers to getting people active and keeping them active is going to be a good thing. So I guess let's start. I'm just going to ask the question. So we've all recognized there has been this shift. There has been this change. What's brought it about? First, it started just because we have, there's more uh, technology, there's better, better equipment to, to ride on. That, that started many years ago with the improvement of over, over the old trainers. Uh, the first time that I, I actually saw improvement was back in the early 80s. I got a copy trainer, and that made a dramatic change in riding indoors. It wasn't nearly what we have today, but it was a significant change. Um, but now we've got... You know, the, the stuff we have anymore is just really amazing. What we can do with with the equipment and the apps to uh, to ride indoors is really what's changed it. But the, the thing that's really given it the big boost has been the, the pandemic. You know, the COVID-19 thing is, is really what got people to start riding indoors and finding out they actually do enjoy it. That it was not, it was the only way to get a workout in there for a while. People pretty much sheltering in, indoors for for weeks and months at a time. I disagree a little bit with Joe in terms of the, that COVID be, was the, the major catalyst in, in the popularity of indoor cycling entirely. I think there was, if you back up a few years prior to that, the, the emergence of the apps and the smart trainers and internet connectivity, you know, broadband, et cetera, when you combine the three of those together, plus all of the work that had been done with training with power and the ubiquity of training with power, all of the work that Joe and others did for you know, the past 20 years in terms of getting people to understand what training with power was and to focus on numbers and, and, and have some literacy with that. You combine all of that together and people were given the tools to be able to make indoor training more either, either interactive with other people, but even just engaging from themselves. You don't need to necessarily be connected to other individuals outside your own home for indoor training to still be much more engaging than it was 10 years ago. Whether you're using just the computer on your own handlebars, whether you're using an app that is downloading um, training content but not communicating with other individuals, there's, there's so many different ways now to do this that people were given just many more options than watching Tour de France videos the way we always used to. Now that we've touched on this growing new form of competition, virtual racing, let's hear from some riders who actually race on Zwift professionally. They are all members of the Saris The Pros Closet team, a team that does all their racing virtually. 
Here are Holden Camo, Jennifer Reel, and Matt Gardner. Do you all just race on the Zwift platform, or are there other platforms that you race on? Tell me a little bit more about this world, because I, to, I will be quite honest. Trevor does plenty of Zwifting. I do very little of it. In fact, I've probably done a total of an hour on Zwift in my life. So, Yeah, I think first and foremost, we are all really passionate cycling esports racers and and right now that's really our our focus and i think most of that that world's focus is is sort of directed at zwift as a gaming platform there certainly are other alternative options for racing um, cycling esports but swift is by far the most established and developed um, so we really focus most of our time on swift and i think that we it's, we always sort of joke and go back and forth about whether or not we actually want to call ourselves professionals we've been doing it passionately for a number of years and we, we've, we've absolutely been early adopters and I think Matt can probably go into some of the detail around really everything that he's done to help grow the sport he was he's been really influential um, in in, uh, in in helping to establish some of the the underlying like framework around how racing works and how, how transparency works he's, he's a, an event organizer on Zwift as well um, we so so I don't know if we're exactly consider ourselves to be professionals. We all have day jobs um, where I'm an ex-professional athlete. I, I've been a professional triathlete for a number of years, uh, but I, I thought I left that all behind me. Um, my athletic career, when I, I sort of stopped racing triathlon and, and started a, a, a business, had a couple kids, and really found Zwift um, because I was interested in in you know staying fit and and you know and because uh, I've been a lifelong athlete and um, it's really easy to get uh, get quickly addicted to to the to the racing in particular cycling esports racing it's just so much fun uh, and I you know one day found myself with really phenomenal fitness um, maybe better fitness than I've ever had in my life which sort of snuck up on me. Um, it really was something that was unexpected. Uh, and um, we formed our, our team uh, about a year and a half ago. I won a national, those Swift National Championships last year. Uh, and since then, we've been sort of off to the races. Um, we've got great support from our two sponsors, Saris and the Pros Closet. Um, and things have been moving really quickly. And we're proud to be sort of at the forefront of the entire cycling esports movement, I guess. Uh, so we have two rosters. So we have the, the women's roster and the men's roster. And um, for our men's team, we currently have 13 riders. And then, Jen, uh, if you want to speak a little bit about the women's team, how many you guys have? Sure. For the women, we currently have 10, but we have um, hopefully soon to have a couple more. It would be awesome to just add like tons of riders and have a really strong crew around the clock. Like since this is a global game, there, there's literally racing all the time. But um, something that we've really tried to hone in on is like a tight knit team um, dynamic where we're all like actually talking regularly and, and 
um, know each other all personally. So it, we have like a really strong bond as a team, which helps us a lot in races. It's nice to have a manageable number of racers. We've got 13 and um, really strong, strong racers who are all really tight knit. We all consider ourselves to be pretty close friends with one another, even though we've never uh, really met one another in person, um, but we spend so much time together. So that's sort of the priority that we've had in, in, building and growing the team. But at the same time, we, we've also really been deliberate and strategic about filling certain certain roles on the team. We have climbers, we have TT specialists, we have sprinters, we've got all-arounders. We are thinking in those terms as well and when we think about building our team and that really factors into how we approach our racing as well. Up until very recently, sitting on a trainer inside was really just that second-rate alternative to what you would think of as real training. That mindset has changed. Where do you think this is going? I wanted to speak briefly about um, the women and the indoors versus the outdoors. On, on the women's team, we have, um, we have some women that really only race indoors, and then we have some that do outdoors and indoors. And I think Zwift is just such a blessing for women especially um, to get into racing at a very high level that they just otherwise wouldn't have access to. I mean, I have one woman who's a former professional triathlete who's now a mom um, and um, she rides only indoors um, because that's what works for her life. You know, and I have a couple women who, a woman who's never raced a bike outdoors in her life um, and she's one of the top racers on Zwift. And then I have many who also do outdoor racing. But what Zwift provides for women is an option to, you know, race um, some of the best athletes in the world from your living room. Um, And that's just something that's totally new and totally amazing. And it's really such, such a great opportunity. I mean, I live on the big island of Hawaii. Um, I mostly only race Zwift and I personally have skipped outdoor races for Zwift races because there's not a lot of racing on Big Island for bikes, mostly triathlon. Um, there's only two bike races a year. And so Zwift, when I found Zwift a few years ago, um, I was all into Zwift racing from, from the get-go just because of the opportunities it provided. And I've seen especially over the past over the past year, the level of competition has just gone up and up and up. And I think that we're still in the early phases of what esports is becoming. Um, and I think we're going to see more and more um, pro teams having like maybe an esports um, kind of squad, and more and more pro esports only teams. And I think a lot of women are going to look at this and say, "Wow, they're having parity for women um, and men in esports. Um, they're having." Um, equal prize payouts, equal courses, equal coverage for women. Um, I can do this from home. This is great. This is, this, is, this is the future for me. Also from the pros closet, but not on the Zwift team, is our friend Bruce Lynn. You may recall from our last episode, Bruce had the goal of setting a new PR on Strava. As a new dad and holding a full-time job, we were really interested in hearing his thoughts on the way he uses indoor riding. Bruce, do you train indoors? Uh, and if you do, what do you like about it? What are your What are your favorite tools? How, what's your setup like? So I actually do ride a lot indoors. I didn't used to, but 
ever since uh, starting my family, it's been kind of a necessity. And my setup's gotten progressively better. You know, I use a, one of the Saris H3 direct drive trainers. Um, I actually just got one of the Saris Infinity platforms. It's still in the box. I actually haven't opened it. Uh, I'm hoping to get a lot of use out of it this winter. And unfortunately, I'm the type of rider who, uh, during the winter, I'm actually a lot fitter than I am during the summer because I end up doing these uh, structured plans on the trainer. And I'm able to do them in the evening when the kids sleep. And I get a lot fitter. And then during the summer, when the days get longer and it's hot and I don't want to be inside, I actually lose a lot of that fitness. So I actually rely on indoor training a lot. And I love it. I'm hoping uh, having uh, one of these platforms is going to make it so that I can do it even more. And uh, I'm hoping this winter is going to be my best winter ever. So I'm looking at page 73 of your book. This is the, the other big line that I really liked where you, you say, adding an interactive component to riding inside has been the real game changer. Community, social connections, competition, and a sense of belonging are all part of the appeal of participating in sports. This is, as you said, is kind of implying the interactivity with other people, but I I personally would take interactivity further. It's not sitting there staring at a tiny little TV monitor. It's when you're on the trainer, you're interacting with something. Like I, uh, I'm on Zwift. I'm also on Be Cool. I love going for rides on Be Cool where you um, can watch the videos and just ride by yourself but go to other places in the world and, and see what it's like. And that's a form of interactivity too. So there's there's clearly some positives here and we've touched upon them in other episodes there's a lot of opportunities to race that could be seen as a positive and potentially a negative if you race every hour every day <laughs> could do it you could overdo it um, there's that social aspect that gets that helps people get onto and get more active more often as Jim mentioned what are you know some of the side effects I guess of of this well, you touched on one of them already. I, a person could race every day if they wanted to, and that's not conducive to good training. Uh, I'm afraid a lot of people believe it is good training. You know, high intensity with great frequency is uh, actually counterproductive. You need some time in there just to spend on uh, lower intensities. You know, the, the whole thing, the, the 80-20 polarization concept that we've been talking about now for the last well, 15, 16 years, is a big part of this and that doesn't change just because you're indoors we still need some some time to get the aerobic fitness not just the anaerobic fitnesses which is largely what we're doing when we're racing indoors so i think the great concern is trying to get people not to be not to be using it just strictly for high intensity on a daily basis that's going to be counterproductive i'm afraid take that a step further the thing i wanted to ask you about because this is a concern to me is is traditionally you hit the base season or you hit off season and then the base season. And in the past, there was no opportunity to race. So that's where you did your work. That's where you did your steady training, your interval work, and just got really excited for when March came around and you could race again. Now you're seeing athletes who are racing on Zwift every day in December. What sort of impact do you think that's having? Well, that can have a very negative impact. There, well, I'll back up. First of all, it comes down to what is the athlete training for? 
if the athlete is turning to do swift races in December, then that, maybe that's okay. If the athlete is turning to do sanctioned road races in the summer, that's not going to work out so well. So it kind of depends on what we're, what the athlete's goals are. But, you know, for the most part, I'm still talking to people who are mostly, who are concerned about turning for events that take place in warmer weather. And they're still using their trainer, though, unfortunately, in, in a way which causes them to be going high intensity frequently. And, and that's the downside of it. The, the thing is, you know, riding indoors has really got some great potential, but we have to learn how to use it. It's like any other tool that a coach or an athlete may have. It's not the sort of thing that you just continually use and that you use that to, to the exclusion of all other types of training. There are lots and lots of things an athlete can be doing to improve performance and high intensity racing is only one of those things that can certainly be done too frequently. Another question in terms of looking at the effects of all this is what impact do you think this is going to have on traditional forms of racing? Why would somebody pay the money, get in a car and drive to a Grand Fondo or a race when they can hop on their trainer at home and do a free race on, on Zwift, do a free group ride on, on Zwift. Do you think this is going to have an impact on what we think of as traditional cycling, traditional events? Yeah, I don't know right now. It's still in the early stages. So we're not really sure what's going to happen. Um, but certainly there'll be, there'll be some who decide that they, they really enjoy racing on Zwift more than they do racing on the local criterium. Uh, and they'd rather, they'd rather do that. And that's, that's fine if that's what the person wants to do. And that's, um, get, we, we all do this for fun. We're not doing this because we get paid to do it. At least nobody I know is, is getting paid to, to ride their bike. So we might as well figure out what is fun and then focus on doing that thing, which is fun, but do it in a way which produces the results that the person would like to have. Uh, you can't just simply race all the time, regardless of whether it's indoors or outdoors, and expect that to be beneficial. It may be very, very hard, but that doesn't mean beneficial all by itself. There are lots of things an athlete can be doing to try to improve performance. And um, doing race is just one of those things. In fact, a really, really rather minor aspect of all the, in terms of the amount of time expended, that's really rather minor compared with all the time that needs to be spent on the bike to, uh, to build the kind of fitness that, that is really uh, all-inclusive for all kinds of races and, and uh, greater fitness. Now, this is one of the places where I have a slightly different perspective because of the kind of the group of folks that, that I communicate with or work with. Um, I look at it as indoor cycling has given people the opportunity to remain more fit or gain fitness that they thought that they may have lost forever. Folks who have full-time jobs, have families, have a lot of commitments, especially these days with, with uh, the economy being the way it is, et cetera. Going out to the local group ride to the Grand Fondo or to even local criteriums really is miserable when you're not fit and it just becomes unfun and you stop going. Um, and indoor cycling, the ability for somebody to ride at four o'clock in the morning if they need to or ride at seven o'clock in the evening if they have to um, or if they want to, for that matter, and be able to stay fit enough that on a weekend when they have the opportunity to go to the local group ride, they can go, they can be fast enough to be in the group and have fun um, and not suffer quite so badly. 
I think that's actually going to end up putting people back onto the road more frequently than taking them off the road. Now, granted, there's still that there's definitely a group of people who find the safety aspect of of indoors so much more compelling than taking the risks risks of riding in a group or even just riding on the road. Uh, but from a fitness standpoint, giving people the ability to go and have fun again on the road because they have the fitness again to do it um, has been, I think we're seeing in the Grand Fondo world, especially people are, are going to those rides because they can go out and have fun again. One question, and this maybe jumps a little bit ahead in the conversation, but it's it's on my mind. I'll ask it of all three of you. And that is, are some people just built more for indoor cycling than they are for the outside racing world. As in, as an example, somebody whose cornering ability isn't that great, but has a huge engine, they can do really well on Zwift because there is no technical aspect like that. So some people might just be attracted to indoor cycling because they do better. Yeah, it can, it can certainly happen that way. There are lots of people I know who would, who would like to race, but quite honestly, they don't like being in, in packs and riders going fast. Uh, they find it very frightening. And uh, for that person, this gives them the opportunity to do that type of race without having to worry about crashing. Um, so, they're, and you know, the same thing with, with riding on the road. Uh, riding on the road in some places, especially, can be very dangerous. This gives the athlete an opportunity to ride as they want to, when they want to, and uh, take away some of the some of the danger and risk of doing it. So I think it's got it's got lots of potential for athletes to to do things they really enjoy doing, and yet take away some of the uh, the downsides at the same time. I think you'll see the same thing in in professional racing. I mean, they've started to do some of the some e-sport e racing, and and Zwift obviously has gotten very very involved in it. I think you're going to see that some of the riders who are wonderful racers on the road may not be the best racers as an esport cyclist, and vice versa. There may be some cyclists who win tremendous events um, in e-cycling and get shelled out the back of the group in an actual classic, uh, because those the mentality and the skill and the risk taking, uh, the risk tolerance, etc., that go into you know, riding Paris-Roubaix is very different than being able to crank out the waters that you need to and, and the tactics that are involved in, in esports. Well, I mean, I'll give you an example of that. I have, we had a, a friend of mine uh, on the show talking about uh, cornering skills uh, a couple months ago, and we asked him about uh, Zwift, and he was like, oh, I, I hate it. Uh, and asked him why, and so just to give a context, this is Emil Abraham. He's podiumed at the Pan Am Games. He was one of the best crit riders in the country when he was in his prime. And he said, I hate Zwift because I can't last more than five minutes in a race. He has a, tools, a tool set that applies to the road, and he can't take advantage of some of those tools at all when he's sitting on a trainer. Right. Yeah. Well, as you guys were talking about before, the, the opposite or the, the, the flip side is going to happen as well. And we mentioned, we talked about this a little bit in the book in terms of, People can generate enormous fitness indoors, and then they go outdoors and mix in with uh, a group of people who are uh, very skilled and very accomplished on the road. And there's a mismatch of skill that there's, there's a match of fitness and aerobic engine 
and a mismatch of skill. Um, and we'll see that happening more and more when you get people who can make it into or stay with the lead group in a group ride or your local criterium, but don't have the skill set necessarily or the tactical savvy to understand what to do with that kind of power. This is something we've known. This isn't just now. This has always been the case of the, the most dangerous rider in a race is the person with a big engine who doesn't have the pack skills because they're the ones who can cause crashes. They're the ones when, when the race gets heated and, and you might be bumping shoulders, you have to hold your line when you're going around corners. They don't know how to do that. And, and I will say, as you said, Chris, we're kind of jumping ahead here, but the important point I'll bring up is if you're spending a ton of time uh, doing e-racing and you want to get out on the road, do things to work on those pack skills. Remember that in the real world, you can't ride through people. Yes, this is true. You might try, but that would be a bad <laughs> thing. That would be a very bad thing. <laughs> I, I will admit to you, I was really frustrated back in May. I think this was an experiment by Zwift. I did this uh, race that had a huge number of people in it. It was over a thousand of us on the start line. And we were two minutes out of the start line, and all of a sudden, a whole bunch of us were on our side, spinning in circles, unable to go anywhere. I think Zwift was experimenting with having virtual crashes. Oh, wow. Huh. So there was a whole bunch of us, and then we had to chase after that, after our riders were allowed to get back up and start riding again. But I was really annoyed by that, because I'm like, this is the whole reason I'm doing this. I've crashed enough in the real world. <laughs> I don't want virtual, to crash here. <laughs> virtual crashing also sucks. So I don't know if they, they kept that or what, but boy, that was annoying. Well, they're definitely, I mean, the, the, the upcoming, uh, or the next steps, and they've already been, uh, some of the equipment manufacturers are already in line with it. Um, they're introducing steering and braking. So for instance, the stages um smart bike has the ability to handle when it's available utilizing the braking features within apps when the apps are equipped with it so the the what everyone's sort of suspecting is that they're going inter to be introducing steering and braking as as features within esports for indoor cycling you know and then it's going to there's going to be a transition period obviously where some races are going to going to utilize them and others won't because not everyone's going to have the same equipment. You brought up another point in your book, and I think this is important too, when we're looking at the difference between on the road and, and e-racing or e-riding. A common expression has always been, if it was just the strongest rider who won, we'd put everybody on a trainer on the start line and see who puts out the best power. So we've always known out in the road, there's a lot more to it. But in an e-race, you're literally putting everybody on a trainer on the start line. And there's a bit of a simplification, but the only numbers it's using are your power, your height, and your weight. So to a degree, it's who can put out the best power. Yes, except that what we're seeing, especially when you talk to the folks who are most experienced with e-racing right now, the knowledge of the course is becoming more and more important in the sense that where the climbs are, when to put power down, when the resistance goes up, actually, you know, with they'll, they'll change the coefficient of friction on the road um, in, in places. And then there's still the drafting aspect in terms of you're still attacking other people and, and putting people on the ropes in terms of their 
power per per you know a five minute period and then trying to hit them again and, and again so there are it's i think when we used to talk about the idea of if we would just put people on trainers and then decide that was based on the idea that if you can put out six watts per kilogram for 20 minutes then that's it the esports at least are putting are pitting riders against each other and on very courses with variable resistance in such a way that you still have to ride the course. No, that's really fair. And I'll actually even take that a step further and say, so I spend part of my time in Toronto, part of my time in Colorado. Up in Toronto, I have a 20-year-old dumb trainer. <laughs> in Colorado, I have a smart trainer. And I find when I do the races in both places, I have to race them differently because on my dumb trainer, when we hit a hill, I don't feel the increase in resistance. And sometimes that causes me to fall back a lot because I don't respond quick enough. But on the flip side, if we have a little downhill, a little leveling, the people on the smart trainers, their resistance eases up. Mine doesn't. And that's where I find in the races I can really hurt people because I'm mm. just staying constant. So I will actually race differently in Colorado on a smart trainer than I do on my dumb trainer in Toronto. And that's one of the things within Zwift specifically that if people reduce the the trainer realism setting, which is they refer to it as trainer difficulty. Um, it'll allow the rider the the on the descents the smart trainer won't ease up quite as much. So the differential between what the rider feels going uphill and downhill uh, levels out, so that they can maintain power. Because if if it's the other way around and you increase the realism effect on, on Zwift, the resistance goes to virtually nothing on downhills and you couldn't possibly generate enough power to keep up. Yeah. And you talked about that in the book that everybody, if you're taking these races seriously, you should experiment a little bit with that realism, find what works best with your strengths. Yeah. So who would you say should really take advantage of that resistance versus who should take it down more like a dumb trainer? Reducing the realism setting in Zwift, you feel the change in in pitch less. So, in other words, when you when you hit a hill on the road and you go from you know a one percent grade to a twelve percent grade, all of a sudden the you, know, you you really feel that, and and you have to increase your effort accordingly. The with the realism setting, you don't feel that transition quite as rapidly. Now you still the the work required to get to the top of the climb is the same. You, it doesn't save you any uh, any work or any energy. Um, it just changes how you run into and out of the changes in in pitch. All in all, there's a lot of nuances here that uh, it takes to be a good e racer or esports cyclist, and uh, we're going to catch up with some pro racers, and we'll get. We'll be able to pick their brains about all these nuances when it comes to racing on Zwift. Yeah, we're we're talking with a team that is that is what they do. E-racing is their thing. Let's get back to the Saris Pros Closet team and hear what they have to say about racing tactics and strategy on Zwift. That sort of raises the question here. You guys do this really well. I want to pick your brains. What are some race strategies or things that are completely different that you need to know when you step into that Zwift world? You know, I, I think a lot of people have heard the you, you 
have to start pedaling before the race actually starts or else you you might get dropped immediately. But what are some other things in that vein that people should be aware of if they're if they're new to this world? The biggest thing for someone new to Zwift is to understand the draft and how it's different than in real life cycling um, and that you can't soft pedal uh, or you're going to be spat out the back <laughs> and you have to just keep pedaling even on downhills if you're a lighter rider. That is a big change. And then you have to understand kind of how um, you control your avatar with your power, like your legs, your power, that is your video game controller. So you want to move up in the bunch, you just put in a a little bit more pressure on the pedals. Um, And you think of your legs like a video game controller. Let's dive a little deeper into that aerodynamics, because that's one of the big things I've noticed, or the drafting. Obviously, it would be too complicated for them to program in actual aerodynamic effects. So they're trying to simulate it. And my understanding is in Zwift, essentially what they do is if you're close enough to somebody going a similar speed with with relatively similar power, they just attach this uh, invisible elastic to you and that rider which is different from the, the aer- aerodynamic effect. But you, all of you have far more experience with this. So could you describe to us how it's different and what you need to be aware of? I think there is aerodynamic effect programmed into the game. So I think depending on how close you are to, to someone, you do get a, a more of a benefit or where you're positioned. Like something that our men's team is really, we're really good at is the, the team time trial format of racing, which a lot of teams they think the fastest way is just to have everyone be going as hard as they can. Well, the way that we've always done team time trials is we ride with like a meter between each rider and we do like a perfect pace line. And there is a, there is a noticeable difference in draft. If you're a meter behind someone or two meters or three meters. Um, And then at four meters, I think that's when you're, that's like the least amount of draft difference from outside is it's just not as it's just not as good of a draft as outside, as, hands down. If you were to sit behind someone outside, you can do significantly less than the person ahead of you. I think in Zwift, maybe like a, a watt, one watt per kilo benefit sitting behind someone is pretty typical. Maybe one and a half. One other thing about the draft is that there's, it seems like there's a bit of a range of a power output you can put out and still stay in the draft. And if you play around with this in a group ride, you can see, oh, okay, I can put out, you know, 20 more watts, but it doesn't change anything. So what you want to do is you want to find the least amount of power you can put out and still remain in the draft. What about other types of things like changes in terrain? How does that impact the way you ride? You you have to, obviously, if you're out on the road, you see the climb coming and you up your power to so that you don't get bogged down at the bottom of the climb if it's a short and steep type thing you must keep your eye on the terrain you must know these courses really well how do you anticipate some of these terrain changes and and what's the riding style like for for that that was going to be the tip that i was going to give was that you really need to know the courses before you try to race them because basically like Holden said, these are interval, like it's basically like an, an interval workout. So when you, when you get to a hill, you know, you're gonna have to put out a certain effort. So that's something that we just by loving the game and, and playing it a lot, we know the courses pretty well. So I know if I'm going on Watopia flat, the, the Essies or whatever is like a, is a rolling section of course. And I know I have to like surge my power 
as I'm leading into each little gradient to maintain speed. So that that's just huge to know what's coming on the road ahead. And you really don't know unless you've ridden the road before. The The game will tell you the, the gradient in the top corner of your screen, but it doesn't tell you upcoming gradient necessarily. So um, you could be caught out by maybe if you went too hard and then you get hit with a climb right after, well, you might be out the back after that. Knowing the terrain that would be related to the tip I would give. I think when people first start racing, very cognizant of how much power they're putting out and they're watching that big power output number on the top top left-hand corner of the screen. Uh, and they're thinking about you know that effort that they're doing and maybe trying to conserve um, power in different places uh, relative to the train. Um, once you really understand where those gradients are and you've ridden around the, the courses enough, you start to think less about that power number and more about speed and your momentum. Um, and you can really develop a sense of, of flow almost in, in the game. And you can read the, the dynamics of, of the, the pack itself and how the pack might be accelerating and stringing out or, or condensing and grouping up. Uh, and you can also start to predict when those sorts of behaviors are going to happen in the race, um, you know, relative to, to those grading inclines uh, at different different moments. So there's there's those sort of um, consistent behaviors that after a while you'll you'll pick up on and they happen frequently around the various courses in, in similar similar ways. One thing is a lot of new a lot of new Zwifters might not be using a smart trainer. They might be using a wheel on trainer that doesn't automatically adjust resistance. So if you're if you're riding a non smart trainer, you have to think okay, this grade, there's a gradient upcoming. I need to put out more power because my trainers, everybody on a smart trainer, the gradient is going to get harder for them and they're automatically going to put out more power. But on a non-smart trainer, you really have to be very conscious of that. And I started, I mean, I started with racing on a, an old yellow Le Mans spin bike with power tap pedals. <laughs> and so every time there was a hill, I would have to crank that knob for the resistance. So, um, that's um, something that people have to pay attention to. So that was actually going to be my question because I have both. I have a smart trainer now and I have a really old dumb trainer and I, I race on Zwift on both. Mm -hmm. And I was going to ask if actually any of you do that because from my experience, I actually race better on the dumb trainer. I haven't raced on not since I got a smart trainer about a year and a half ago. I've, I've never gone back. I just, I just like it better. It's definitely very different. Um, and it takes a big adjustment to getting used to the two ways. I think it'd be hard to go back and forth between one or the other. I like to race with the trainer difficulty on like a very low setting. So in Zwift, you can control how much your smart trainer feels the gradient. And I, for a long time, I raced at 50%, which is actually a requirement now for the, the pro-am um, leagues that we, we race in, but I went, I, I started adjusting it down until I landed at like 10%. So I could just barely feel climbs, but just enough to know like, Oh, I need to um, shift into a harder gear. But there, I think there is something to be said about having, having a constant resistance and then you use your gearing to adjust your power output or how difficult it is to ride, which, so you could basically make your smart trainer a dumb trainer um, by turning the trainer difficulty all the way down to zero, and then you wouldn't feel any hills, um, and you'd have complete control over your gearing um, and resistance level that way. 
Interesting. Okay, so you, you kind of go for this hybrid of the two. You want to feel it a little bit, but not have it dominate. Yeah, I think it's really difficult. Like, I don't want to get into my small ring on if I have to climb up the Alp. I don't, it, it, if I can minimize my shifting, then that's ideal. There are some obvious differences. One is that you can ride right through people in Zwift, not something you can do out in the road, and, and please don't attempt that. We talked about how the aerodynamics are a little bit different, and you don't have brakes. So I find when I'm in a Peloton, I have a real hard time being in the middle of it. I'm either accidentally off the front of it or accidentally on the back of it and just going back and forth between the two because I can't ever find that sweet spot. You know, I think that is speaks to the point I made earlier about how how cycling esports is sort of creating uh, just a, a new athlete type. Um, and it's because of those sorts of things. You're, you're forced to change the way you ride and, and how you pedal in order to play the game successfully. Um, so because you don't have brakes, because your, your legs are your controller, um, you, if you are, you're, you're making a lot like faster, quicker changes in power output. Um, so you're, you're, you need to react like very quickly and, and you're, it's almost like thinking one pedal stroke at a time almost. Um, so, you know, you've got to fluctuate power output up and down and that is, you know, in, in anticipation of the need to, to break or in anticipation of the need to, to move forward in the pack. Uh, and, um, and that, you know, that forces you, I think, to pedal a little bit differently and, and, and in turn that changes, you know, the physiological demand that, that's being put, um, on, on, on the ride is changing how your, how your fitness is being built. Um, and I don't know if that's exactly, you know, something that would cross over in, in, in outdoor cycling, uh, in, in indoor cycling. Um, it's, I, there hasn't, you know, been enough time to, to study those differences, but it's definitely something I notice that that's how you do it. You, you, you're, you're trying to be as, as adaptable as quickly as possible with your power output when you're pedaling. The, the one thing I did notice that you, you just touched on is that idea of anticipation. I find to be able to ride effectively in a group in Zwift, you have to anticipate a lot more. Absolutely. And you, and you, you'll, you start to learn, the more you do it, you learn what those signals are, so to speak, you know, those, those, the, the, you, you start, you pick up on the little cues that tell you that something's going to happen and that you're going to need to respond a certain way. Um, uh, you, you'll notice that, uh, and there's a lot of those different cues that are happening. You've got a rider list on the right-hand side of the screen and that tells you in real time, you know, everyone's watts per kilo. And if you see someone who's spiking up their power, then you have to be ready to respond in some way to that that you've got the gradient that's in effect and uh that you're that you're thinking about you've got the the actual speed and your pace that you're that you're that you're moving the size of the pack as well to 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 consider you know how much how much draft you might be getting your position in the pack i'm always thinking about i spend most of my time thinking about whether or not there's someone behind me um, cause I know if there's someone behind me, then I know that I've got, you know, at least one more person that 
can come around me and I can attach to their wheel and, and I can, they can ride me forward. Um, but there's a lot of those things that you, that you're sort of considering, uh, and, and, and again, anticipating different scenarios. I have learned to stare at that little thing over on the right, showing your position relative to people. And it's the same thing when, when I'm the last rider in a group and you can see the next rider behind you as a minute back, you, it's, it's a scary place to be. <laughs> not unlike a race out on the road. Well, yeah, but I mean, when you're tailgunning in a race out on the road, there's a lot of times where you're safe. On a Zwift race? Never. Uh, not my experience. You guys <laughs> might be able to do it better than me, but tailgunning is the scariest thing in the world in a Zwift race. Yeah, it makes me uncomfortable to be at the back of a pack. Like I I spend most of the time at the front or trying to get off the front of the, of the Peloton. So when I get too far back, I, I get to... I feel like I'm going to miss something if it goes off the front. It also can be very dangerous to be on the back of the pack as, as soon as the pack hits a climb because all it takes is one gap somewhere with a rider in front of you. And if it's a big enough pack, a gap can form and you don't even realize it. And all of a sudden, you know, there's a front group and you're in the back group and you can't, you can't even see that on your screen necessarily. There is, with this sort of racing, always the, uh, the issue of, people not putting their real weight in. It's a real easy way to cheat. How do they handle that? Particularly the, the sort of invitational races that, that your squad is doing. Since Zwift facilitates those, they use um, the Zwift accuracy and data analysis, ZADA, um, which is a team of coaches and, um, and data scientists. So before the race, within 24 hours, you have to weigh yourself and send a video into ZADA and you have to do height measurement um, at the beginning of an event. For the pro-level racing or the elite-level racing for Zwift, it is really well-policed, I would say, because you have, you could dehydrate yourself, but you, you have 24 hours before the start of the race um, at the maximum. So if someone were to try and dangerously get to a weight that's unbelievable for them, they're not going to race very well. So, um, uh, yeah. So I would say for the, for the elite level, it is pretty good. But, yeah, it is – it is um, something you have to take with a grain of salt when you're doing the community races that are just open to anyone. I feel like if you get too wrapped up in worrying about it, it it'll just ruin the fun of it. And also in the new upcoming um, Zwift Racing League, they have, they're going to have dual recording mandatory for all racers at the elite level. Well, let's uh, change gears a bit and talk about the application of indoor cycling more from the training side of things and the different modes of indoor training. There's obviously different ways you can set up your trainer, your smart trainer, your dumb trainer, but in any case, set up your, um, your studio for the application of training indoors. Let's walk through some of the, the pros and cons of each, I guess, we should also start with the different modes. Trevor, do you want to give us a little overview of what those modes are since you are doing this quite often? Well, let's throw it to the two of you because you understand the technology far better than we do. But uh, you, you did a great explanation of the book of the self-directed versus erg mode versus you know, the, the, basically these different ways of, of using a, a trainer. Can you Give us the, the broad overview explanation of these, these different modes, these different ways of using it. 
So uh, we looked at, at indoor training and tried to break it into categories because as you said, you can modify or you can combine things in, in a variety of ways. So we looked at it and thought, well, there's an off-grid method of indoor training where it's kind of your uh, trainer that's not connected to anything and you're staring at the at a wall or the the computer on your handlebars or, or a TV that's playing a Tour de France video. And then there's the uh, connected version of indoor cycling where you're connected to something that is training content. So uh, whether it's an app or you've downloaded a workout from training peaks into your, um, into your cycling computer and it's controlling a trainer, but somehow you're connected to something. Um, then going a step further is a is interactive, which is esports or a virtual group ride or um, you're connected to other human beings. And then there's together. And that's sort of the in-person classes or the on-demand classes where there's a, a guide or a, a subject. And that includes Peloton and things along those lines. So we sort of categorize them uh, uh, across those. And each of them have their pros and cons and um, and their applications to, to training. There's nothing that is inherently better about uh, any of the four and uh, they, they each have their utility within, within training. Yeah. That's what I wanted to ask you about. Cause I agree. It's not a, well, erg is better than self-directed or the group ride. It's, as you said, each one is just different. What would you say is the best applications for each from a, from a training standpoint? And I think it's worth defining erg mode for those out there that don't know what that term means. So erg mode within uh, the smart bikes or smart trainers um, is going to be where the an application or an external source is controlling the resistance on the trainer. So if I or Joe gives you a workout that says you're going to do 400 watts for five minutes times six intervals, the trainer will put you at 400 watts and, and keep you there for the duration of that interval. Yeah, let's get back to the the pros and cons of each of these four different modes the off-grid for instance the for some people it's it's a necessity so that's what they have either you don't have internet connection where you have your trainer you don't have the trainer that is you know a twelve hundred dollar or seven hundred dollar trainer um it's what you have and one of the things that i thought was important within the book and within this context is not to tell people that if you have if that's what you have that it's somehow inadequate it's perfectly fine to do that. Um, not only that, but in cases where there are riders who, who are easily distracted, um, who need to work on the ability to focus on the ability to be self direct, self motivated, um, turning off all of those other things can be crucial because when it does come to, um, whether it's, if you're doing an outdoor race or you're just training for an Ironman or something of that nature, when it comes down to it, you're going to have to produce the power on your own um, when it comes down to it. So the ability to train off grid and, and do that um, for yourself is important. Um, if you rely too heavily on the social aspect of interactive training or the um, control aspect of er ergometer training, when you have to put the power down on your own, you may not have the willpower to do so. I personally have used erg mode for a long time. 
especially in the winter when motivation is low and I get on the trainer, just having the trainer say, okay, you're going to be not at 400 watts, but 300, 320. Uh, and you don't have a choice here. Uh, really beneficial. As you said, you have to learn how to produce that power yourself. And I always, as I got late in the base season, is what I do with my athletes. I then say, okay, now let's transition outside and, and figure out how to do that same power. Uh, but I have to admit, and you hinted at this, I, I find another advantage of erg mode is this fact that we're all kind of like dogs that see a squirrel. You, you get on Zwift, you might have a workout, but then somebody passes you and look, I've done this a hundred times. You have to chase them. And when you're in erg mode and somebody goes by you, you don't have a choice. You, you can't chase them because the trainer is going to control your wattage. And I think Joe can certainly speak to the, the fact that the, the quality of a training session, um, you know, from a coaching standpoint, if we want somebody to produce a certain number of kilojoules or the, a certain uh, time at intensity, erg, or erg mode is a godsend. I mean, you give an athlete the, uh, the training file, they put it into the system, um, and off they go, and there is no shortcut. There is no athlete who slacks off in the last 30 seconds of the interval or skips the last one or all of those kinds of problems that coaches have run into uh, over time. You give somebody this, this file and the, and the power file you get back at the end looks exactly the way it's supposed to. Yeah, the, the benefits of, of the erg mode can be, can be rather uh, great, actually, in terms of that sort of thing that Jim was talking about, just making sure the athlete is doing the workout as, as specified. The downside is if the athlete's not ready for that workout yet, and that's something the athlete and the coach need to be talking about is when is, when is a good time to decide not to do the workout as it was designed? And there can be lots of reasons for that, fatigue being the most common reason. So um, there's lots of things, uh, lots of potential for the athlete, but uh, the coach and the athlete still need to talk about how do we go about using these tools to produce the best, not only the best workouts, but ultimately the best fitness for that given uh, rider. So Joe, one question that I would have for you is, is well, how should people, for instance, with ergometer mode um, correlate um, cause ergometer mode only controls power. So how, what do they need to be doing with correlating RPE and heart rate in order to see whether or not that workout is, is the way it should be? Well, the bottom line always is RPE, um, ready to perceive exertion. That, that really is, is what training is all about. If every battery on your bike failed, you should still be able to do the, the workout or the race. And, and do it in a quite uh, uh, appropriate manner. Hit, hit numbers which are very close to what you're supposed to be hitting, even if you don't have the numbers in front of you. So every athlete needs to be able to do that. And all we're doing with the power data and so forth is giving us a way of specifying more precisely what that um, effort should be. Um, so, so bottom line is the athlete has to know how to uh, – for example, when I when I was coaching a lot of athletes, I would I would have them put a piece of tape over their handlebar uh, device or even over their wristwatch so they couldn't see their heart rate and still have them do the workout. And then later on, we'd look at to see how they were doing relative to what their uh, uh, what their, their impression was of how hard it was. In other words, RPE versus power versus heart rate. 
And so, you know, that, that's the sort of thing we all must be good at. We've, we're becoming very used right now to having all the numbers in front of us. But the bottom line is we've got to be able to produce um, those numbers without having them visibly in front of us all the time. So, so training is really much more complex than simply looking at numbers. It's got a lot of feeling that has to do with how am I doing relative to what am I supposed to be doing. And that's something that the athlete has to learn. If you, if you only look at numbers, then I'm, I'm afraid you're really not becoming a well-rounded athlete. We need to be, um, be able to interpret the numbers and use them, but we also need to be able to, to do the, uh, the workout uh, without the numbers so we can just do it based on how it feels. So I think there's, it really goes both ways. There is no either or here. It's really both. The athlete needs to understand how to use the numbers and how to, how to uh, train based on RPE. Joe, before we get away from what you were just discussing, a question I really want to ask you as a, as a follow-up. Going back to, to erg mode, where the trainer is setting the wattage, do you feel that helps athletes to learn the feel, or do you think that takes it away from them and always riding in erg mode, they're, they're never going to learn the feel? No, I think it's, again, it's, it works both ways. The athlete needs to be able to, to know what's going on as far as production. What, what, what wattage are they producing? The bottom line is um, there's two things we're looking at in terms of, of uh, performance and, and effort. One of them is, is power, um, and that's, that's a performance measure. Uh, that's, that's what we're looking at is how am I performing? Whereas RPE, especially, and also even heart rate, are measures of effort. How much, how much effort am I putting into this? So we've got, both, we've got both input, which is the effort, which is heart rate, for example, and we've got output, which is power. And the two of those need to be married. We need to be able to understand what we're seeing when we, when we look at numbers. And we can also then use that as a way of measuring progress. What should happen over time if the athlete is training properly, is that their output relative to their, to their input, in other words, their power relative to their heart rate, should be increasing. Um, that's just a very simple way of looking at how am I doing as far as fitness is concerned. And so the athlete needs to be able to interpret those numbers, but at the same time, we've got to be able to, um, to, to ride in a way that is, is based largely on how we feel at the time. Races are based on how we feel. We don't do criteriums based on, for example, we don't do criteriums based on, uh, on, on what the power should be at any given moment in the ride. The athlete has to know what that feels like and, and what they can do, what they know is possible from training, and therefore be able to apply it in a, in a race situation. So it, it's, uh, it's much more complicated than simply looking at a number. And, and uh, I'm afraid uh, people always associate me with numbers. I, I'm a very much of a data freak. But quite honestly, there's a lot more to training appropriately than, uh, than just numbers. There's a lot of things going on here about how the athlete um, feels producing those numbers. And that's a critical uh, thing for the athlete to learn in the process of training. One of the other things I guess this brings up in terms of um, advantages, I guess you could say, with this ERG mode and, and, and using it for your training is the repeatability, the consistency, the control that you have over that. Do you see that as an entirely an advantage or there, is there some disadvantage to that, Joe? 
Yeah, there's the disadvantage is that the athlete is not really um, controlling what's going on in the workout. The workout is is controlling the athlete, in effect. And so that's so every one of these modes has got something about it which is either which is negative and also positive. So it, the, the the purpose of having all these is being able to then use the ones that best fit the situation that the athlete is in at the time, given what that athlete's um, needs are to improve the performance. Um, so it's it's a it's a matter of choosing what's appropriate at the right time to for the workouts. So it, it's not an either or in any case, it's all these things are possibilities and we need to be able to use all of them in an appropriate manner, the same as we would on the road. You know, on the road, I could have the athlete ride a heli course or a flat course. Um, and I could change if it's a group ride or, or a, um, a solo ride. So there's lots of things that are variables on the road also. We just got the same situation indoors, only we're just defined in different ways. Uh, erg versus connected versus uh, interactive and so forth. Um, what the coach has to do uh, to prepare the athlete to for whatever their goal may be, and we're assuming now that the athlete is is uh, his goal is, or her goal is racing at a certain level. Um, you know, the athlete needs to uh, to be involved in all kinds of types of workouts to get there. The coach's job is to figure out what those workouts should be. Um, this comes down to what are you, you mentioned the, the weaknesses of the athlete. I, I refer to those as limiters. Uh, every, every athlete has a limiter. I don't care who they are. Every athlete has a limiter. There's something that's holding that athlete back from being successful. It may be several things. And usually there are several things. Some are more important than others. And the coach's job is to figure those things out and then design workouts. And if we're talking about these for indoor training, not only are we picking out designing workouts, the workout is based on the type of, of uh, usage we're going to get from the equipment the athlete has and the apps and so forth. So it's, it's a matter of figuring out all of this stuff. It's kind of like being an engineer. Coaching is very similar to engineering. Basically, you're trying to solve a problem. The problem is what is standing between the athlete and success and trying then to, to eliminate that Whatever that thing is, it's got to be corrected. It's got to be eliminated or at least uh, made less, um, less visible for this given athlete so that we can achieve the things the athlete is trying to, to do. So this whole thing of which mode do I use and, and how do I use it and what the intensity should be and all that stuff is extremely complex. And the, the coach is making decisions based on what they know about the athlete's performance and potential. So it's, uh, it's really a complex issue. Um, uh, it's a sort of thing that most athletes never even give any thought to. They just decide if the workout's hard, therefore it must be good. And that's not always the case. Uh, there's different definitions of hard based on how much intensity the athlete is applying, what the endurance ratio is to, to the intensity ratio. So it's a really uh, compound issue we're talking about here for we're trying to get the training right for the athlete. There's no one mode we're going to choose that's going to be right for every athlete in every situation. Now, one of the things we do talk about in the book, though, is is matching some of the modes to the different types of of workouts. Um, for instance, the sprint type workouts um, where the you're trying to get to an unpredictable but highest possible 
peak power or peak effort within that that uh, within that interval. Erg mode isn't going to necessarily be helpful on that, but a level mode where you're saying, well, the resistance level of the trainer is X, and it's operating more like a fluid trainer, then those that mode is going to be helpful with um, those kinds of train those kinds of efforts. Say the VO2 max efforts where you're just you need to go as hard as you can for one minute or two minutes or three minutes at a time. And we don't know what that max is going to be. Um, or it's a 15 second effort and we don't know what that max is going to be. So we don't know where you wouldn't know where to set it, an ergometer. Um, the ergometer mode for a type of workout where you're going to do FTP uh, training, where you want to stay at a specific um, power output for 10, 12, 20 minutes, that can be good. Um, a good use of ergometer mode. It can also at different times of the season be a good time to turn off ergometer mode so that you know that you can produce whatever power that is for 20 minutes being self-directed. Um, so you can use it for, for both. Um, and then there are either whether it's the interactive classes or the group rides or just the root or the, the, the root mode where it's following along, uh, a predetermined course or a virtual course can be good for um, training the variability. The fact that you don't know when you're going to have to go hard during a race. You don't know when you're going to have to go from endurance pace or endurance um, power output to VO2 max power. So the um, scenario of how you're using your training for those aspects or those uh, training sessions, you wouldn't want to use um, ergometer uh, for that mode. That's towards the end of the book, and I was about to bring that up too, that you did a really great summary of here's the different types of, of work you do and which modes are appropriate and not appropriate for that. As you pointed out, sometimes it's more important to know what's not appropriate. You try to do sprint workout in ergometer mode, and you're going to have a, a, a really unpleasant time because the braking mechanism is going to lock down so hard, you're just going to stop pedaling. So with each type of workout, there, there are modes that are appropriate and, and aren't. And that gives me a good segue into the, into the final way of training indoors, which is the, the together version. So one of the benefits, uh, the big, one of the biggest benefits of still going to indoor classes, studio classes or on-demand classes, et cetera, is the live coach aspect of it or the instructor aspect of it. Um, because you can get people who need or benefit from some of that advice, whether it's encouragement from the coach or tips on whether they need to change their cadence, whether they need to uh, do things differently while they're riding. So the, the final way of, in, of training indoors um, shouldn't be discounted in the sense that it's not just what you can do by yourself, but there are benefits to those uh, studio classes. Let's get back to the Saris Pros Closet team, Holden, Jen, and Matt, to talk about how they train in order to deal with a race calendar that involves racing several times every week. The racing on Zwift is is different from normal racing, where you might have normal racing, you might have one or two A races, you might not do that much racing through the year. Where on Zwift, you can be competing, literally, you could be competing every day if you wanted to. I, I would be shocked if any of you were actually doing that. But how does this impact training? For those of you who have had experience 
racing outside with with more traditional racing has being a Zwift racer changed how you train? Definitely dramatically different approach to being a cycling esports racer. Um, I'd been a swimmer um, through youth and through college um, as an NCAA All-American swimmer uh, and then a professional triathlete for about eight years. And now the approach I take, uh, I was also a triathlon coach um, for, for a long time. So I have some experience in, in, um, in coaching and understanding that physiology and how to make athletes go fast. Um, and the approach I've taken with Zwift has been really interesting. Um, I don't consider anything that I am doing from a training perspective anymore. I don't ever train. So it, it is only racing. Um, with, and I would say 95, that's true 95% of the time on occasion, um, I'll do a easy recovery ride. Um, very rarely will I do any type of like interval training. Um, I rode my bike outdoors maybe six times over this summer, um, for, you know, maybe a longer two, three hour ride. And that was most, mostly just, you know, for a joyride perspective, it wasn't about endurance smiles or anything. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's mostly just high intensity hour long training or racing sessions, um, almost every day. Uh, I usually take Mondays off. Um, and I guess I, I, I probably average two days off a week if I'm being, if I'm being honest, some days it'll be, uh, a little bit more than that. Um, other weeks a little bit less, but yeah, it's, it's been from a physiological perspective. I can't wait until the exercise scientists really start to pay attention to what's happening with athletes around esports because physiologically it's a very different athlete type that is succeeding uh, at indoor racing. Um, and uh, from my perspective, it's really pretty interesting. So this is where I, I might get myself in trouble because I have that strong opinion that we all need a period in the year where we don't race, where we do less high intensity, get back to, to more what do you think of as traditional base training? You're not really doing that. You are high intensity all the time, all year round. How are you finding, uh, you find no problems handling that or do you find it to be a bit of a struggle? I've had the luxury really to uh, approach cycling esports from this perspective of compared to, I guess, when I was racing triathlon. I just haven't been taking it seriously isn't the right word because I take it very seriously, but I don't think about the training implications as much anymore. It has definitely crossed my mind that I've been going real hard for a long time. I've been sort of waiting for the other shoe to drop, so to speak, to, to, to see when I might crash or, or, or need like be forced into taking a break. And it honestly hasn't happened. I've been, I've been going uh, pretty consistently for about a year and a half. There's been there's been ups and downs, and you know, and uh, and that is, I think, sometimes related to other um, obligations or stresses of life in general, where I might just might not be able to be as focused. Um, but for the most part, it's been 
sort of a steady progression uh, and I've been able to keep up that the pace for for a while that might just be related to where I'm at in in my life I'm I'm older I'm 42 I, I I did a lot of training for triathlon and and for swimming in, in, in when I was younger and so I might have sort of like a, a an accumulated um, history I guess of, of preparation that might be setting me up pretty well right now but that's been my experience it, on a day-to-day basis the stress of an hour you know the races are short they're 40 minutes less than an hour typically and you know once you hit a certain fitness level that really just doesn't do too much to you from a fatigue level and you can keep on doing that really pretty consistently if you manage you know weekly weekly stress well enough um, i've found that it's possible to keep on going now whether or not i could be doing much better if i were you know thinking a little bit more strategically about building fitness is uh is the total total other question. I probably could be if I were a little bit more focused and if I'm being honest, but I'm having a lot of fun with this approach. I think it is a bit different for women than men. A lot of times it's women don't recover as quickly as men. It takes a bit longer. So I don't think you see the women racing, you know, five days a week on Zwift like a lot of the men do. Um, I don't know many women that can do that. Can do that. So I think you'll see a little bit less racing on the women's side. It is definitely a different type of physiology going on in Zwift racing that leads to success. Um, As as Holden stated, they're they're one-hour races. I mean, you don't need the fitness for a six-hour road race. And I also think it's it's something almost more more akin to to running in that in a Zwift race, at least the women's races, the the competitive ones, you're never soft pedaling ever. I mean, you're pretty much pedaling hard the whole time, and then sometimes you're going even harder. And so I think I've seen the women that are really successful on Zwift are often women that come from triathlon backgrounds, running backgrounds, and even ultra cycling. Our best racer, Christy Tracy, she's an ultra cyclist. She raced 24 hours last week and beat all the men in a race. And she's crushing it on Zwift as well. Um, and most people would think, how can you be an ultra cyclist and be a Zwift racer at the same time? It doesn't seem to jive. So I think everyone's training is a little bit different. But I think what one thing that you do need is you need a high threshold, good FTP, probably a nice base, and then you can go into really working on that top end, which comes pretty quickly. And then you just keep racing. I just want to add to, to what you just said, Jen, that I think one of the biggest things that actually is outside of what like you're physical, like capable of physically is the mental aspect of Zwift racing because so much of a race is internal motivation on Zwift because you can't see your competition to know how much they're suffering. So you're really just like in your own head, like, man, this really hurts. Like, let's say you're on a, a really hard climb and you have to just really be internally motivated and like someone for like Christy Tracy, she did the 24 hour time trial last week. Like she is so mentally tough that I think that plays a huge role in success on Zwift is, is what you're able to convince yourself to do in your living room or your basement at five in the morning when it's so easy just to get off. Like, I think that's why a lot of people find Zwift racing so difficult when they start or just riding the trainer is because it kind of sucks mentally until you 
until the the switch is flipped and the the gamification really comes into play. What would you like Zwift to have in it that it doesn't currently have in it to improve the racing experience to make it either more interesting or fair? What would you say? I'd like to see a little bit of improvement in um, the draft. I know they're probably constantly always tinkering with it, but one thing that you do see now is that the the more riders there are in a pack, the faster the pack goes. So sometimes that can get a bit out of control. I'd like to see some more new power-ups because I think the power-ups are super fun. I know a lot of people will say, oh, power-ups, they you know, they um, it's not fair or whatnot. But I think that's part of the game and I embrace it. So I love that they're coming out with new power-ups all the time. Um, I've heard about this anvil, but I haven't seen it yet. I've got to ask you guys, what... Yay or nay, bring in all of the Mario Kart items. Red shells, blue shells, green shells. <laughs> Oil slicks. I would absolutely have that in the community races. It would be it would suck to be in a pro am race yeah. where it where it really matters for us and to get hit by a red shell. But <laughs> wouldn't that be so much fun to have an actual Mario Kart race where you have all those items and you could just take one another oh, yeah. out? I might actually get on Zwift if that were an option, Trevor. Zwift, we hope you're listening. <laughs> so, Matt, to, to get back to our serious question about improvements you'd like to see. I was serious so I, about that. The, the, the improvement I would like to see is actually in the industry and not, not necessarily straight on Zwift. I think that power meter accuracy and and understanding from cyclists would be if that could be, uh, I would, I just wish that, I hope that there is more standardized power measurement and accuracy between devices. And because I think that is a, a big issue with, with cycling on Zwift right now is that maybe there are people who have a power meter, which is, is inaccurate or can be tampered with. Uh, and they end up influencing a lot of races, which is, is frustrating and, and and it could be unintentional which that's on the industry that that sold them a, a power meter which isn't accurate and i think that will make the game much better when when you can buy into the results of races more regularly it, it'll just make the community better if if the industry as, as a whole has a more standardized product as far as power measurement that's a big ask so that 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 maybe is more years down the road. Yeah, but I think that's what's needed really to take to take this to to the next level. Um, because mm-hmm. yeah, you can you can go ride two different power meters and you can get um, ten watts difference um, easily. And I mean, for maybe a lighter rider who weighs fifty kilos, uh, that ten watts is is a, makes a huge difference in the race. So. Yes, I would love to see power meters and trainers that are so-called, you know, cheat-proof or um, and that are designed for accuracy. I mean, power meters, they weren't really designed for how they're being used right now in Swift. They were designed to, to give you, as the rider, the same number all of the time, which may or may not be exactly the accurate number. Then that was also something that um, when we started working with Saris initially was that we wanted to ensure that their product was as robust and accurate as possible. And we are overwhelmingly confident in the power output that the, the current trainer, the Saris H3 
puts out. Um, we did right away. We our team has every brand of power meter you could think, and we did a, a ton of testing on on the trainer, comparing for race efforts and training rides to ensure that the power curve for the trainer was accurate with all of our power meters. And I think that so I think I think smart trainers are getting there that. Um, the industry from that side is going to be um, really robust in 2021 and power meters on bikes that they're not designed to be raced on like that. But I think you made a, a great point that the the companies that are making the trainers are, are re- realizing this, realizing what these trainers are being used for and adapting. Do you guys consider yourself gamers, athletes, or both? I would say both. I was I was a very heavy gamer in my youth and played a lot of Halo 3 and I think once I got on Zwift that that was reignited initially and that's I saw myself as like a gamer playing Zwift um because at, at the time I was training for triathlon and not really racing but now that I've where the sport is gone and where obviously um on an esports team I definitely see myself as a, an athlete gamer now. Well Joe, Jim, we like to close out every episode with a take-home message, uh, the, the most important salient point that you'd like to make from, from this discussion today. We'll give you 60 seconds. That's our normal allotment. Joe, let's start with you. What would you say is the most, uh, most important take-home from this discussion we've had today? Uh, the bottom line is that the athlete has to figure out what is best for them. We're not all the same. We're unique in so many different ways. Every athlete needs to decide, you know, what, what is best for me. I, I would suggest that indoor cycling provides a lot of opportunities for, for every cyclist, regardless of your goals. There are lots of opportunities here that uh, to take advantage of what's available to us now in, indoors to make our outdoor cycling uh, better, um, to, to race better, perform better, so forth. So there's, 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 there are great tools available to all the athletes now because of stuff we're doing with, with equipment and apps. And uh, the athlete needs to, needs to decide which of these things is do I want to try next. And it's just a, a nice playground we have available now to all of us. Jim, what about you? Um, I think, you know, when I look back on my career, et cetera, the, my goal has always been, how do we get people to be more active and healthier and to love what they're doing? Um, and then when it came to writing a book about indoor cycling, it, I think it comes down to uh, one line at the end of uh, the equipment chapter of the best cycle, the best indoor cycling option for you options for you are those that increase the number of days you ride or increase the total amount of time you spend riding. So with all of the things that we've talked about and with all of the equipment and variations that are available, um, there isn't anything that is inherently better or worse than the other, but finding, helping people to find whatever it is that's going to make them ride more frequently, ride more often, get more fit, um, improve their health, it, it reduced their stress level, et cetera. That's what we need to do. And, and riding inside um, can play a significant role in that. And 
play a more significant role than it has been able to um, in in the past. Trevor, and the, these apps, these the the technology has somehow leapfrogged from just trying to make indoor training when you need to do it a little more tolerable to now actually being a really enjoyable experience. And indoor cycling is becoming, in ways, a sport in and of itself. Where that is going to take us in five years, that was one of the things we had in our agenda here to discuss, but we, we all just kind of said, don't know. Personally, if you'd asked me five years ago if we were going to be where we're at now, I would have gone, no, you're, you're crazy. So I'm excited to see where this is going to go. I think my message to people is, uh, if you enjoy this, as Jim said, and this gets you on the bike, do it. This, this is, it is different from what it used to be. The only warning I just want to give is if you are like many of us and you ride outside and you want to ride in groups, don't forget that skills element. Don't forget that this is still different from riding in a group outside and you need to practice those skills. Chris? You know me. I don't ride inside ever. So well, we make you sometimes <laughs> when we can. I have, I, have, I have partaken in a Zwift race or ride. I'm not sure exactly what it was. It felt like a race. <laughs> that's, that's, that's what I've heard Zwift is like. It's a race. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I go back to Jim's point. Do what you w love to do. Uh, have have it be an enjoyable experience. Make sure it, it it increases the amount of time you spend on a bike. I just happen to do that always outside. And if I can't ride my bike, I I do something else. So great discussion. I am not the person really to to best close out the episode, but there we have it. We made Chris do a Zwift ride, and I had to do everything except for put him on the bike and clip his feet in, <laughs> next, and which next I was time, close to doing. Next time, you will have to lift me up onto it, yeah, just because, <laughs> not because I wouldn't do it. I just want to see if you can lift me up and put me on my bike. You can be like one of those little eight-year-olds when they go to bed and they act like a sack of potatoes. Exactly. You have to carry yes. them. Dead weight. Just try to, <laughs> to put try to get me bike. on a bike. Exactly. Exactly. But then if that's the case, then try one of the other ones, you know, try, that's very true. Uh, try Ruby, try RGT, try, uh, be cool. Um, Jim, the... Jim, stop giving Trevor ideas, would you? <laughs> I'm liking this. <laughs> well, thank you guys. The, the book again, ride inside the essential guide to get the most out of indoor cycling, smart trainers, classes, and apps. Thank you, Joe Friel. Thank you, Jim Rutberg. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, guys. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Appreciate it, guys. That was another episode of Fast Talk. As always, we love your feedback. Email us at fasttalk at fasttalklabs.com or record a voice memo on your phone and send it our way. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcast. And be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. For Joe Friel, Jim Rutberg, Jennifer Reel, Holden Camo, Matt Gardner, Bruce Lynn, and Trevor Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening.